Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And for the last few weeks, we've been going through some practical teachings that Jesus has been bringing to us. Not changing the law per se, but showing us the Spirit of God through these examples in Old Testament law. And piggybacking on how they've been misused in the culture of His day, and as we've seen, are currently still being misused in our own culture. In Matthew chapter 5, we come to another section where He teaches us from the Old Testament law. He says in verse 38, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. There is much that we could speak on in all of these. The Bible deals with each one of these, both specifically and not so specifically, all throughout the Scriptures. We could go to passage after passage after passage, and we could spend months dealing with this little section. Um, In fact, we're going to be spending this morning and this afternoon going through this passage together. Um, But here he is quoting the Old Testament again. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we're going to get to that. We're going to look into the Old Testament passage where this is found. Well, here, in general, to highlight these, Jesus is giving us various categories where we should be revolutionary. We should be radically different than the world around us. In fact, the Old Testament law that he's piggybacking off of was actually a pretty revolutionary law for the day. And Jesus is re-revolutionizing this law. Digging down into the true heart of God. So he gives us some very basic case studies. And teaches us that in our spirit, as we approach these things, if we are not being supernaturally driven, then we are not filled with the mind and the spirit of Christ. If we approach these different subjects the same way as our unsaved neighbor in the spirit of social wisdom, then we do not have the mind of Christ. As we might suppose, simply because we follow all the other rules in the Scriptures. But these are difficult to follow if we have not been supernaturally transformed inside of us, given a new mind, given a new spirit by God. So he gives us some categories. One, he 
he opens it up by saying, don't resist the evil person. An evil person comes against you in some way. Don't resist him. And he gives some categories under here. One who would insult, defame, or dishonor you. Don't resist him. When somebody comes against you to sue you, to take what is yours, using lawful means, however doing it from a spirit of bitterness, hatred, anger, persecution, don't resist him. And then he also deals with resisting generosity or service, dealing with forced labor, or dealing with the beggar, or dealing with the borrower. Don't resist generosity. Don't resist hospitality. Don't resist service, even to those who would take advantage of you. This is not easy for a carnal mind to comprehend. And before we dive into these categories, we must first see the things that Jesus is confronting in the Old Testament law. If you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 18. Exodus 21, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read a few verses here. If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, she shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now, this passage is promoting legislation concerning harms done, whether against an equal, whether against a slave. The punishments on either end are harsh. And this was actually pretty revolutionary for his day, for for the day of the Exodus. For, the, for Moses' day. <clears throat> it was radically merciful compared to the laws around them in their society. It even allowed, as we just read, that if you hurt your slave, and that slave loses even a tooth, you, get, you have to let the slave go free. That was revolutionary. Nobody else really did that. I was reading, now, in, stu- in my studies both in past and present, I come across the fact that this isn't the first time we've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth among cultures in the past. There's something called the Code of Hammurabi, perhaps some of you are familiar with. School teachers perhaps have taught about this in the past. 
that was in existence a few hundred years before this text was written. And it promoted an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. So during my week, I read through the entire code that was at least translatable by historians. I read through the Code of Hammurabi um, just to see how it compared. And the Code of Hammurabi, while it itself was revolutionary for its day, it was not as revolutionary as this. For instance, in this situation, if you hurt your slave, you have to let the slave go free. In the Code of Hammurabi, if you hurt a slave, you had to pay a sum of money to the slave's master. The slave actually never benefited from the transaction. However, in God's law, if you hurt the slave, the slave goes free. Set him free. And here we also see that if you hurt, harm a woman so that the unborn child is harmed, there was something about that in the Code of Hammurabi as well, but again, it was simply you paid money. You paid money to the husband of the wife, or you paid, or you, or if you were the husband and you harmed your wife, you gave your wife the dowry and she could leave you. But here, if you harmed a pregnant woman and she loses her child, you lose your life. This was revolutionary. It's even revolutionary for our day. In our day, we can freely kill unborn children and have no penalty whatsoever. In fact, you're applauded by politicians. But in the scriptures, it says, if you harm a woman with an unborn child and there is a death involved, whether of the mother or of the child, you lose your life. You are put to death. This was unheard of in this day. And like I said, it's even unheard of in our day. If a president imposed a law about this, that if you abort a child, you're put to death, how do you think our society would react to that? Unfair! Women's rights! That, that's, that's just a lump of cells. They have no human rights. Not until they're born. Not until they're 36 weeks. Not until whatever. Revolutionary. Even for today. And this is given thousands of years ago. But yet it shows us, even for an infant, life for a life. Life for a life. Leviticus chapter 24, if you want to switch, hop over there. This is another place where we find this. Leviticus chapter 24. Starting in verse 17. It restates these laws. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. And you shall have the same law for the stranger, and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So even if somebody comes into your land from a foreign country, if you kill that person, 
you deserve death. If they kill somebody in your land, they are responsible for the punishments of the law of this land. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you want to look there, we also see this here. This is probably the most stated law that Jesus is dealing with. Deuteronomy chapter 19. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room. It's talked about quite a bit in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 21 says, If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So here, this is, this is, all t- this is tying this back to don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's in the Ten Commandments. A lot of time we decipher that commandment as saying, don't lie. When, when it says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, it's saying, when you go to a stand, don't tell a lie against somebody in a legal matter. And he's telling here, he's telling us, okay, let's take that and discern a punishment for this. If you witness falsely against somebody, you tell a lie, perhaps somebody hires you to, stand on, to get on the stand to witness against somebody, to say, I saw him do this. You know, I saw them kill so-and-so. They deserve death. I saw it happen. But then the judges determine, no, you're a false witness. You're telling a lie. Then what happens to that false witness? That false witness, according to this, according to verse 19, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So if you witness falsely, you are put to death. Or if it's a situation where you were saying, they stole something from somebody. They deserve restitution. And it's determined that you were a false witness. Well, you get to pay the restitution that, was, that would have been required of this neighbor. You get to pay that to the neighbor. And this was supposed to keep people from bearing false witness. It would make it hard for somebody to be hired. Because if they were found out, well, they get the punishment. <laughs> they get the punishment as the false witness. The person lying against his brother gets the punishment. Everybody involved with this false witness gets the punishment that this person that they were witnessing against to was about to receive. And then he follows it up by saying, it's all applied to this. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Foot for foot. Overall, these laws seem to be good, fair, and just laws. And like I had mentioned, they were revolutionary for the time period that they were in. They restrained abuse and injustice. They compensated the wronged. They revealed equality among classes of people. Slaves, women, people who were very much put down in society as a lower class of people. No other nation had laws like this, treating both the slave and even the unborn like people with rights. 
We haven't even caught up with that as a nation. Even though the Civil War is over, racism still runs rampant in our nation. As some people might call ageism, as far as not feeling that the unborn child has any rights, just because they're not on this side of the womb. People take advantage of children just because they can, treat them as, chill, as people with fewer rights. And here the law comes and it's changing all of that. Not necessarily changing, but stating what the truth is and has always been, regardless of what man might say. And now here comes Jesus making something that was already revolutionary seem obsolete. Because this law gave you the right to be compensated for wrong done against you. It gave you the right to come out against somebody and receive compensation or some just due for some wrong that has come against you. To stand up for yourself. To fight for yourself. The law gave you that opportunity. And in the day, this was a good law. It was unheard of. To have laws like this, giving so many rights to so many people that everybody else didn't give rights to. And Jesus is using this law to open up a greater, nobler understanding of what it is to be a follower of God through following Jesus Christ. Because we, we don't follow the law of Moses per se, not any, not, not any more than we are following Christ Christ is the funnel through which we view all of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, begins this revolution. He says, do not resist the evil one. Do not resist the one who is evil. And we might read this in light of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Some, some of us, some people in our society believe that we're not to ever use force in any situation because of this passage. They were never supposed to resist any form of evil. But Jesus is not stating that per se. He is stating this in reference to a person's legal rights. And he's referencing a law that was always before a judge. It was before some sort of legal procession. Jesus also is not instigating national governmental polity for the United States of America per se or China, or whatever country you might say. He is directing this statement towards those who would follow after him in his kingdom. He is not making national law as far as earthly kingdoms are concerned. He is establishing God's law, eternal kingdom law, for the follower of Jesus Christ. Because in, in so much that when Jesus came, he abolished the theocracy that was Israel, per se, and told us, he told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not about Israel being the kingdom of God. It's about the church being the kingdom of God. And the church is not a nation. He is establishing polity for those of us who would walk among the nations, being revolutionary because of who we follow even though we might have a citizenship in a particular nation. In this category, Jesus is calling for a revolution of mercy, meekness, and contentment among his followers. 
If an evil person comes against you, unjustly attempting to gain something from you, using the courts to do it, or harm you through the legal system, our first response should not be to come out against them, or perhaps even resisting their attacks at all. Now, before we jump up in arms, I want to read to you an example. Matthew chapter 27, if you'd like to look here with me. Matthew 27, because this teaching has foundations for why it exists. Our first inclination should not to say, Jesus, well, what about this situation? Our first inclination is, Jesus, I bow the knee to you. And I will do as you have spoken. And we need to see here, why is Jesus saying these things? Well, let's see an example here. Matthew chapter 27 Starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Here we see an example of how Jesus stood up for himself in the courtroom, obviously being unjustly accused by people with ill intent. They've been seeking to destroy Jesus, his entire ministry. Jesus could have spoken up for himself and completely destroyed the accusations of these people who are coming against him. Have you seen Jesus' life and how he responded to the shrewd tactics of the Pharisees with utter wisdom that confounded them? They couldn't speak a word against the wisdom of Jesus. Surely in this case, Jesus could have stood up for himself and completely abolished any accusation against himself, providing no shred of doubt that he was innocent. And if we were to keep reading, we would see that Pilate found him innocent anyway. He thought that the accusations against him were ridiculous. Jesus didn't even have to say anything. And he didn't say anything. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus despised the shame that was placed upon him on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of this. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And then you over down to verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, 
so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for yet he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So here we have a juxtaposition of Jesus Christ and Esau. Jesus Christ, why did he despise the shame of the cross? Why did he endure such hostility? Why did he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. He knew about what was up ahead. He knew the birthright that he was getting for himself. He knew that this was this hostility, the shame, the anger of the people, the persecution. He knew that there was no substance to any of it. He knew that they could take whatever they wanted from him that didn't take away God's will, didn't take away God's power. Didn't take away what was up ahead of him. He had his eyes set on the future. And that is why he thought nothing of the shame people were placing on him. He thought nothing of what they were trying to take away from him. Because he knew what was up ahead. Whereas Esau, the only thing he cared about was right in front of him. He gave up what was up ahead the birthright that he would receive at the death of his father. He didn't care about that. He despised the future. He despised the birthright. And he proved it because he gave it up for a bowl of stew. For a bowl of stew. For a momentary satisfaction. To him, it wasn't even satisfaction. To him, it was, if I don't get this bowl of stew, what good is a birthright? Because I'm going to be dead of starvation if I don't have this bowl of stew. To him, it was a very real and present need, Esau. But what does it say here? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. His focus on today's needs, his focus on today's provisions, made repentance impossible. Because he was so sold to his earthly life. He was so sold, he was so given, so ensnared by what he felt he needed today. That he abandoned, he forfeited his future. This is the the contrast that's being given here by the author of Hebrews. Jesus, he didn't stand up for himself in the courtroom when he could have, because he didn't care about today. He didn't care about today's provisions. He knew who was in control. He knew who the sovereign one was. He knew the will of God. He knew what was up ahead. He had no need to fight for himself. Because the Lord would fight for him. The Lord would, Lord's will would be done. 
Esau, on the contrary, he cared only for today. He cared only for the bank account. He cared only for the savings account. He cared only for what would fill his belly in that moment. He didn't care about the future, so he lost the inheritance. And if there's, a, if there's one among us who says, yes, I'm a believer, I prayed a prayer, but you're so consumed with what you have, you're so defeated if you lose something, you're ensnared like Esau, ensnared by the provisions of today and the, the anxiety of loss. And you're more like Esau than you are like Jesus. I, if this is me, am more like Esau than I am like Jesus. Jesus knew what was ahead. And he had little concern for what was happening to him on that day because he was so consumed with what was up ahead. Esau would rather have one more meal than to have his birthright that would give him and his family, his inheritance, meals for generations. But he would give that up for one moment, because of one moment of pain, because of one moment of suffering, he would give up generational blessing. A sure sign that we are not a follower of Christ is that we will sacrifice anything, spiritually speaking, for earthly sustenance, and think, next to nothing about eternity. Paul also hammers this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is the passage that Rich read earlier, but he didn't read the whole passage that we're going to look at. Let me start in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. How many of you are content if everything that you owned was gone except for the clothes on your body and the food in your cupboard? Would you be content with that? Really? Dwell on this this week. But, with, but those who desire to be rich, to have excess which we could talk all day about how our society has reconstructed us and our brains about what is excessive. We don't think that a cell phone is excessive, though it is. We think nothing about the fact that spending $200 a month on cable is excessive, but it is. Those who would desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into which many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why do we desire to be rich? There are spiritual reasons why it is good to have an abundance. But the majority of humanity does not desire rich for noble reasons. The majority of humanity desires to be rich because of lusts and covetousness. Those who desire to be rich, what does it say about those people? Fall into temptation and a snare, a trap. The desire for gain and wealth is a trap. And into many foolish and harmful lusts. See, it starts with the desire to be rich. 
And then that desire produces lusts that perhaps were not even there to begin with. And these lusts drown men in destruction and perdition. They weigh us down. We want more. We want another thing. We want the next thing. We want extra. We want surplus. And we're drowned by this pursuit of more. It has been said by many different millionaires, famous millionaires, that it's so hard to have money. Because all you think about is where it's going and what it's doing and how to get more and how to use it better and how to invest it better. You're just drowned in thinking about money. For the love of money, in verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Is it a sin to be rich? No. But it is dangerous to be rich. And it says here, the ultimate test is that some people in their wealth have strayed from the faith through greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If the money has weighed you down, it has become a sorrow, a snare. It has driven you away from the faith in Jesus Christ. Then you hold your money contemptuously, poorly. But there are many who have a special gift from God that they can hold wealth and faith at the same time. And Paul teaches how to do that. But before we get there, we must read the rest of his thought process here. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue, not money, pursue not wealth. If the Lord would have you be wealthy, then he will make you wealthy. Rely on him, wait on the Lord, if that would be his will for you. But you, as far as you are concerned, here is what you should pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay a hold on eternal life. Say in contrast of what Esau did. He did not lay hold on what was coming hereafter because he was so consumed by what was in front of him in the moment. He says, lay hold on eternal life. Just like Jesus despised the shame of the cross because he knew what was up ahead. That's why he cared little for what the people were trying to take from him, even his own life. He cared little for that. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that is where Rich stops. But look at verse 13. It ties this all together. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed what? The good confession before who? Pontius Pilate. Exactly what we were just talking about. He stood there before Pontius Pilate and spoke nothing to his own benefit. Therefore, thereby giving us a great confession that we should strive to lay hold on, to become people who fight not for our own things, for our own life even. Because we care little for that. We care much for the eternal. Just like Jesus confessed before Pontius Pilate, giving us the way of the cross, 
He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. In what way should we walk? Well, let's start with the way that Jesus walked, giving us the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He cared nothing for his life. He cared only for the will of God. He cared only for what the Father cared about and had stored up for him, had promised to him. If only he should endure the suffering and the loss. Because the loss meant nothing. The things that he lost meant nothing. I mean, if there was somebody who we would long to have decades of ministry, would it not have been Jesus? To have more and more books written on how Jesus ministered on the earth, the things that he taught. Ah, would we not love to see 50 more years of Jesus ministering, being recorded down in a 20-volume set, still containing barely anything of what Jesus did. But no. It was better that he left. That's another conversation. But then in verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus' appearing. Look at John. John chapter 18. Jesus spoke a little bit more during that confrontation with Pilate. John records this. John 18, 33-37 says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. Now, in all of this, was Jesus railing against his accusers? No. He was simply speaking the very words that he was being accused for as a blasphemer. He was just telling them again, you know, they're bla- they say I'm a blasphemer because I say I'm the Messiah, I've come from God, I'm the king of the Jews. At one point, those people even tried to make him the king because he fed their bellies. He fulfilled some daily need of theirs. But now they're calling him a blasphemer because he said hard things after that. He stands not up for himself. Rather, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, if I was concerned about the things of this world, what would happen then? Then my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom's not from here, Jesus said. He's not concerned about glory here. He's not concerned about even keeping his body alive here on this planet. Those are not his concerns. Jesus was ready to suffer shame and reproach 
that was cast against him. Because he didn't care about his, his own life. And in verse, if you go back to 1 Timothy 6, you don't have to per se, but I'll read these verses to you. Paul tells Timothy, therefore, what to teach in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present age. Okay, so this is how you can be blessed with wealth and faith. Rather than abandoning faith for the sake of wealth. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Okay? Don't be full of yourself. Don't think you're better than everybody else because you have stuff. Don't trust in the fact that your wealth gives you power and ability because as much as God can give it, He can take it. But trust rather in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And in verse 18, he continues, Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works. Okay, again, put your mind on eternity. And see only your money as a tool for which you can lay up treasures in heaven. Rather than a tool by which you can live out the days of your life, eating, drinking, and being merry. For tomorrow we die. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for, the, for what? For their retirement? For their kids? No, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, and that they may lay hold on eternal life. In Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, he talks about how he doesn't believe that we should really store up for our children. Maybe something, maybe a little here and there. But in scriptures, it talks little about what we should leave for our children. There's a proverb that talks about how a wise man will store up for his generations that follow. But the rest of the scriptures talk about today, with your, with your sustenance, don't store it up. Give. Be generous. Let it go. Let the Lord take care of everything else. Be hospitable. Don't hoard. Have you ever watched that show Hoarders on TV? <laughs> Storing up. Literally, physically being weighed down, being swamped in stuff. That's not the way the Lord would have His people live. So back in Matthew chapter 5... And I'll, I'll be wrapping up this morning's message. Matthew chapter 5. Back to verse 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Why should you, who are content with only the life to come, and you are content with just the basic necessities of this life, concern yourself with shame placed upon you by somebody else? 
Why should you concern yourself with the things other people are trying to take away from you? Why is that of any importance to you? If you are only really concerned about the life that is to come. What is it to you who know what real life is all about and who it is who holds your destiny? What is it to you that the world take that a man take the whole world from you? That simply draws you nearer to God. In verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Let me back up. The slapping on your cheek, that was a backhanded slap. Even in, even in today's culture, someone backhands you, it's a reproach to you. It's an offense to you. It's not, that's not the way that you knock somebody out in a fist fight. That's the way somebody insults you. That's the way somebody says, you are worthless. You are an idiot. How dare you? That's what you do with a backhanded slap. Most people in this culture were right-handed. So when he says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, that's the right-handed person slapping you on the right cheek, that's the backhand. You can inflict more pain going to the left cheek, but to go for the right cheek, that's simply an affront to your character. That's simply an affront to you as a person. And Jesus is saying, care nothing for your reputation. Care nothing for what people are trying to make you out to be. Because this life, it's not worth building yourself up. It's not worth fighting for your reputation. Let your deeds speak for themselves. Let your faith speak for itself. Be content in only that God loves you, even though everybody else turned their back on you and turned their, to their hand to your face. In fact, let them do it to the other side too. Turn your cheek so they can slap that one too. And then he goes on to verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, so that's the outer garment, the coat essentially. If they want, in, in that day, if somebody was going to sue you, they would take you, they would take whatever was most valuable from you, money, possessions. So if somebody is suing you for your tunic, the assumption there is that you're poor and the only thing that they could literally take from you is the shirt, on your back, the shirt off your back. And he's saying, even those of you who are the poorest, if the people would come against you to try to take even the little that you have, give them even more. Don't just take the tunic, but give them the undergarment as well. Let them have whatever it is and give more. Why? Because you want them to have that? No. But because you are sending the message, I care nothing for this world. You know what? If you want to live for this day and age and shrewdly deal with the people around you so that you could build up your own treasures on this earth, I'll leave you to that. But me, I concern myself not with earthly possessions. In fact, here, you want my coat? Have my tunic. Or backwards. You want my tunic? Have my coat too. Have my cloak. Have my undergarment. I care nothing for it. I'm not anxious about what tomorrow holds because I know who holds it.
And if the government, in verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This is speaking of a day where a Roman soldier could command you, carry my armor for a mile, carry my bag, my satchel, my sword, my shield, my helmet. It's hot. I've been marching all day. It was legal for them to say, here, you carry it with me for a mile. And the Jews hated the Romans. The Romans were their oppressors, literally the evil one. This is the one that they would really resonate with, the evil one. And Jesus says, if somebody comes up to you and says, here, carry it a mile, don't just begrudgingly drag it for a mile. Actually, offer two miles. Go above and beyond what's legally required of you to show the world that you are radically different, that you are not known for what you oppose in this world, that you are known for true character, true generosity, true honor. You are willing to sacrifice even your own honor to be like Christ. I mean, who in this world is, has more honor among people than Jesus Christ? Nation, even people who hold him wrongly will honor him, except Muslims and various other people groups. Even Muslims honor him as a prophet. But yet he, of all people, was shamed and dishonored. He took the reproach that was brought to him by the legal system. He did not fight against it. Why? He cared nothing for this life. Much of our bitterness, much of our anxieties about politics and taxation and redistribution of wealth, that may be unconstitutional, but essentially what Jesus is saying, what do we care? It's not ours. If God wants us to have something, then he'll give it to us. If God wants us to not have something, then he'll take it away from us. You, your destiny does not rely in the hands of people. Whether those people be in government positions or they're an angry neighbor who hates you. Your destiny does not lie with them. God's will does not rise and fall because of people around you. Put your faith in God. Not the government. Not your ability to... Not your lawyer. Not your ability to stand up for yourself amongst those who would come against you. And this is extremely hard, especially for those of us who have dealt with unjust people coming against us. Those of us who've been sued for silly reasons. Those of us who have people who hate us for no reason at all. People you'd expect to repent, to reconcile, to forgive, but yet they don't. We've all experienced that to some degree, and it's hard for us to... What do we do about that? Do we just keep taking it on? Do we keep bearing iniquity? We're going to talk more about that this afternoon. So I'm going to leave you with that cliffhanger, I suppose. Because um, our time is up and there's much more to speak. But if you take away anything from this, take away this. This life is not yours. What you own is not yours. You are a steward of of particular items in your possession for a time. And however so much God would have you steward it. But this life, 
despise it, despise any shame, despise any, any loss. Because who cares? I'm laying hold on eternal life. That's what I care about. I care only for the faith of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. As He says later in the next chapter, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. Don't concern yourself with that stuff. If people want to take it, let them take it. If people want to abuse you, let them abuse you. But you strive after eternal life. Lay hold on that eternal life. Don't let go of that rope that's tied to eternal life just so that you could lay both hands on a possession. Hold loosely the things that are on this earth. Be willing to drop them at a second's notice if the faith of Jesus Christ would call for it. Do not give up the honor of Christ. Do not give up the desire of what is ahead, the birthright that you will receive in the years to come. Do not, lay, do not despise that. Do not abandon that just so that you could coddle in the comfort of money and possessions. Drinking from broken dry cisterns that leave you wanting. That lay up for you a snare, a trap. Drowning you in many sorrows. Especially eternal ones. Lord, we are content. Lord, I suppose we'd like, we would like to be content with the shirt on our back and the food in our pantry. Lord, with whatever discontentment we harbor in ourselves, with whatever anxieties over personal loss, honor, dignity, whatever deep concern we have for these things. Let us, Lord, have a heart to release it. To not hoard, but to give. Not to receive, but to, to, to cast away. To not be benefited, but to benefit. God, give us a heart of humility. Let us be like Jesus. And forgive us, Lord, for our anxieties and for our covetousness and our lusts after this world. For they are great and they are many. And let us lay hold on eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.